You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Brian Shellam. Uh, Brian uh, worked as a historian at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and prior to that was a career Army officer. Uh, he had a variety of troop assignments with tank units, served a tour as an Army attaché in Bonn, and did service on the staff of the 2nd Brigade 1st Armored Division in the Gulf War. Uh, he is a graduate of West Point and has gone on to do uh, interesting studies, uh, which we may touch on later, on some of the tactics being used by the insurgents uh, in Iraq. Uh, what I'd like to do, uh, Brian, as we start here, first of all, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, you're coming from DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It's not an agency that many Americans know a great deal about. And I know that uh, one of the primary uh, field uh, elements that DIA uh, houses, of course, are the attachés and the attaché system. wonder if you could just give us a sort of a thumbnail. What is DIA, primary function? And then let's move into that field of, of the attachés themselves and what role they play in the field. Okay. Uh, DIA is a fairly new organization uh, created in 1961. Um, came came out as a result of, of a lot of study that was done in the in the 50s. Actually, Eisenhower um, uh, proposed a, uh, a study group. Um, he was not happy with the competition among the services um, and thought that there 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 ought to be a, a way to to coordinate the the, the military services better. Um, resulted in uh, a study that recommended a creation of a defense intelligence agency. Um, uh, Secretary McNamara actually put um, uh, those uh, findings into effect in 1961, uh, created uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. It took a few years for all of the responsibilities from the services to be transferred over to DIA. So uh, DIA, the last of those responsibilities was responsibilities for attaches uh, in 1965. Um, and then since then, and, and of course, in those first uh, three decades, um, the, the, the main focus of DIA was on, on uh, our main enemy at that time, the, the Cold War, Russia. Um, and it's a military intelligence agency, um, defense intelligence agency. Um, basically, they are 
the premier military uh, intelligence uh, coordinating body for uh, f for um, our our defense department. Now, you know they've changed. It's changed over time. Uh, the focus and the mission, um, but that's that's basically um, uh, how DIA came about. Now, of course, each of the military services also has an intelligence component. I mean, the G2. Yeah, that's that's um, that's correct, and they still have those. But that that was part of the problem. But uh, you know, the, the the missile gap and and things that happened back in the early Cold War years. Um, uh, actually, the the the, uh, the service intelligence organizations were competing against each other. Um, in in some cases. Um, creating intelligence pictures that supported their own budgets, uh, or that was what was uh, what was charged, and uh, um, and, and so I, Eisenhower basically got fed up with that and and uh, um, put together this uh, this um, the study group that uh, recommended a creation of a DIA. Maybe it probably did. just like people say it took Nixon to to go to China. It took a military man to find right. put yeah. the military folks together and who understood the military like better than yeah. than any president. Yeah. So uh, DIA currently is, is one of the major players. The DIA sits uh, certainly part of the intelligence community. It certainly is a major participant in, in drawing up the national intelligence estimates and, and other estimates. That's right. And, and, and of course, their, their mission really changed after the end of the Cold War. Um, part of that was the Goldwater-Nichols Reorganization Act uh, of uh, 1986 which made DIA a uh, combat support agency. Uh, support to the warfighter became real important. Um, and, that, and, that, and that led up, and then of course that combined with the end of the Cold War, um, uh, really changed the focus of DIA to support to the warfighter along with um, uh, support to the COCOMs. Um, and then you had a, uh, the beginning, the Gulf War, Gulf War I, uh, 1990 to 1991, where Really, DIA as a, as a warfighting agency came of age, um, developed a lot of concepts to support the warfighter, and, it, and it's just uh, gone uh, since that. You know, this is a bit of a sidebar question, but as you and I speak, uh, the, the Secretary of Defense Gates is, is uh, looking for major budget changes in the Defense Department, and also uh, uh, looking at what what our defense, uh, what our military should prepare to deal with in mm -hmm. the out years, and there seems to be a sort of a growing feeling that uh, so, sort of doing more for the things that General Petraeus recommended—that is, the the, the special forces sure. and uh, so forth—and I've got to assume the DIA is playing a major role in helping formulate what that new policy will look like. Yeah, I'm I'm sure they are. I mean, there's always been this tension between um, conventional <coughs> forces and special forces. Uh, my personal opinion is you need both. You need a good mix of both. Um, the problem is conventional forces are a lot more expensive, uh, and uh, and right now the you know the special forces are very very uh, useful in the current insurgent uh, fights in Afghanistan and and in Iraq. Um, so that's that, that's going to be an ongoing debate. Now you mentioned that uh, the last uh, element of the military services to be folded into DIA was the attaché system, and tell us just a little bit about the system, and then what do attachés do? We all hear about a military attaché somewhere, or the military attaché was involved in such and such, and I think uh, much of the public doesn't have a good, clear idea of the role of the military attaches. Yeah, yeah. 
the uh, of course the military attaches became part of DIA in in uh, 1965, but they had been around a long time. The 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 Navy Department ONI was the first ones to send out naval attaches, I believe, in 1882, um, followed by um, the War Department, the Army, uh, in 1885 or 1888, somewhere in in that time frame. And of course, they went out to the big European cities. Um, to they were they were observers. They were they were there to observe and and bring back. Uh, at the time, it was thought that the, the Europeans were more advanced and they could bring back techniques, technology uh, to the United States. So they were they were they were they were really out there to to report on developments in Europe. Um, uh, the attaches, of course, grew over the years um, up to you know to around the 20, turn of the century 20 or 30 around the world um, and uh, and then after World War one um, of course they continued to grow over the years um, where today I think we we've got uh, I don't know what the number the, the number is but uh, uh, attaches uh, really around the world now the uh, I was an attache uh, an army attache in in uh, uh, Germany in Bonn uh, the old capital the Previous capital, uh, currently in Berlin, um, from 80, 19, 1986 to 1989. So this is right at the end of the the uh, Cold War. The wall actually came down after I left that assignment, went back to a troop unit. Um, so the the uh, really the an attaché um, has three jobs um, and three main missions. Um, first, he's a he's a reporter. He's a um, and uh, he reports on developments in the country. Um, he reports on military uh, developments in the country. Um, reports that, of course, back through DIA, uh, through the ambassador, of course. Um, second mission is uh, there's a representative mission. He, he represents his service in the Department of Defense in that country um, for visits, for uh, cooperation, coordination uh, between uh, the militaries of the two countries. Um, and then the last mission, one one that's you know really forgotten a lot, is is that he is the he is the military advisor to the ambassador. Um, he is actually an aide to the ambassador. That's why uh, attaches wear egalets or or the the the, uh, the gold and yellow ropes because they're considered aides to the ambassador. And really, the the their boss is the ambassador. The, the ambassador sets the tone on, on on how much emphasis they give those different missions. Um, so those are, those are their main missions, and, and uh, they vary from uh, two people in the very small stations to very large uh, groups in, in some of the bigger embassies. Well, typically in the embassies, there's a there's a leadership team, as it were, called the called the country team, and uh, headed by the ambassador, and I uh, and the military attaché, I have to assume, plays a very key role in that team. Yeah, that's right, and and so the 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 uh, every um, uh, defense, every uh, attaché office overseas has uh, one guy who's in charge. He is the defense attaché. Um, that was a that was a, also a problem when when all of the different services had their attachés over there. They were all there was a lot of duplication. Nobody in charge. Um, you'd have an Army, Navy, Air Force guy over there. So this was one of the changes when DIA took over. There's a there's a designated military attaché who is in charge of all the other attachés. And he is the representative who goes to the country team meetings, uh, along with all the the other representatives, and and is the single 
guy that the ambassador can talk to and give direction to. Well, he would typically be the, the, the senior officer among the attaches, I would assume. Correct. Uh, correct. Usually there's a, there's a, uh, there are some traditions. Um, uh, normally, you know, for instance, um, uh, uh, Germany normally has uh, as an ar army officer as the, the, the defense attache. I know uh, the Oslo and Norway always had a Navy guy. Um, uh, but and, but the problem is they're all, you know, you might have an Army, Navy, Air Force, you know, three colonels um, who all, you know, are ab approximately the same rank, but one of those guys has to be in charge. Sure. Okay. Does it, now I don't want to uh, put you on the spot here, but, but I am. Uh, the, the, we, of course, have uh, people in the, uh, our installations overseas, our embassies and so forth, often who are, who are collectors of intelligence. Uh, and, and I think attaches are, in effect, collectors of intelligence, particularly this reporting role where they're, they're perhaps watch, watching the National Day uh, parade in that country or uh, going to, uh, if there are military bases there and there's an air day or something mm -hmm. like that, visiting and so forth. But I certainly know we've read in the media from time to time about attaches uh, perhaps pushing the envelope a little bit, and I'd, I'd be interested in your comments on that. Well, it, uh Pushing the envelope. I mean, that's a kind of a relative term. I, I, I know back in the Cold War days, um, if uh, especially you know, for instance, in the Soviet Union, um, if a military, if, if an army attaché or a navy attaché spoke Russian a little too well and uh, was too a little too aggressive in, in going and talking to the people, um, the, so the, the Soviets didn't like that very much, and, and uh, they might set him up or just uh, declare him persona non grata, PNG, and, and send him out of the country. Um, so it was uh, uh, sometimes it wasn't the aggressive attaché, but, but the country not liking um, uh, what the guy was doing. But I would, I would assume that you do have some attachés who are, you know, let's say aggressive collectors, that is, who will uh, look for opportunities to... Uh, to conduct reporting that would be useful yeah. to that, but that uh, you know I, I would say that in, in the attache preparation uh, you know before they're sent out that's it's emphasized that you know you're uh, you, you know you have to be a good steward in the host country um, and of course it depends on what country you're in I was in I was in Germany it was an ally so sure. that's a, very, it's a far different environment than if you're in a hostile country um, uh, but of course, uh, you know you you have um, you have requirements and and uh, um, reporting requirements and and uh, I suppose you have to take risks sometimes. But uh, um, generally, I think you you know you do a better job for your country if you're uh, if you're careful and and you're a, a you know, good steward to your country. Now you were a uh, you were in in Bonnesnatische. You were a German speaker. Yeah, I was a German speaker. I was a I, I was an armor officer, um, but I was also a foreign area officer. Uh, we have a kind of a split uh, specialty um, system in the army. So I was a, a German foreign area officer, a Western European foreign foreign area officer. I studied German and and through the schools and uh, went to the the foreign our language institute and and uh, a fluent German speaker and uh, one of the reasons why they sent me to uh, to the embassy in Bonn. So. That's certainly, um, uh, I think that's perhaps one of the most important requirements is, is speaking the, the, 
the language of the country. It certainly makes your job easier and, and uh, makes the, the host country respect you more that you actually speak their language. Does DIA make a point of, 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 of trying to prepare its officers with language training? Sure. For the most part. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, know it can't be done all the time. Right. You're I mean, one of the first <clears throat> things you do if you're going to get into uh, – even if you don't speak the language, you're given an aptitude test. If you if you don't have an aptitude for learning languages, you're not going to become a foreign area officer. Um, and then, they, of course, they send you to uh, send you to school. And I had studied it before the military and at West Point, um, so I was I was already a, uh, a fluent speaker. So I just got better. You know, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated when I was looking at your background to see that it, you, you published what is an, a very intriguing book. Let me and the title of it is black officer, no, excuse me, black cadet in a white bastion, Charles Young at West Point. And I, I wonder, that, you know, was your interest in Charles Young? I don't know anything about Charles Young. I wonder if you could tell us something about him. Yeah. But he sounds like he was a, uh, a forerunner, if you will, uh, of, of so many things that have happened in this country. Yeah, yeah a, f a fascinating uh, character. I, I actually got... Uh, got interested in Young when I was uh, uh, working at the history office and uh, at uh, DIA and we were trying to do outreach we were trying to find subjects where we could actually go out to conferences and talk and public forums and uh, had an interest in attaches um, I uh, started reading about this guy and there hadn't been a lot of research done he was uh, the uh, third black uh, graduate of West Point, graduated in uh, 1889, very early. Um, uh, he was the first black military attache, um, served three tours. His first tour he served from 1903 to uh, 1907 in Haiti, and then he served two tours later uh, uh, in the uh, 19, uh, 1912 to 1915 uh, uh, in Liberia, and then um, uh, 1919 until 22. He died on station on a, on a confidential mission in Nigeria, um, serving as an attaché in in, uh, in uh, uh, Liberia. So, just a fascinating uh, man. I started uh, doing research, and and then later on um, decided to uh, that the man deserved uh, some research and a book, some attention. Um, besides being the first uh, attaché, he was he was had a, a lot of other distinctions. He was the uh, first. Um, uh, this is kind of far afield, but he was the 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 uh, first black uh, superintendent of one of our national parks uh, back before the creation of the National Park Service. The U.S. Army patrolled our parks, so he was superintendent of Sequoia National Park. Um, uh, you know, and a, and a number of other other things. Highest-ranking black officer uh, until his death in 1922. Really, a forerunner for well, for blacks in, in 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 the U.S. Army. That's quite extraordinary. I noticed you said he was deserving of a book, and I noticed you have a second book yeah. that you're going to come out with called "Black Officer in a Buffalo Soldier: The Military Career of Charles Young." Yeah, the that covers his military career. My first book, uh, uh, published in 2006, uh, University of Nebraska Press just covers um, his early life up to graduation from West Point. This second book, uh, which will be published early next year, really covers the rest of his life. Uh, his attache tours, he fought guerrillas in the Philippines, um, National Park Superintendent, um, uh, just, a, just a fascinating man um, and uh, certainly worthy of a book. You, you mentioned he was the third black to graduate from, from the academy. Right. Uh, 
And I would just ask you, and when did he graduate? He graduated in 1889. 1889. Right. What sort of treatment was he accorded in the academy as a, uh, as a black cadet? Yeah, I discuss that a lot in the book. Uh, of course, not very good treatment. Um, uh, I, I, I looked, uh, did a lot of research to really find out. I mean, there were a lot of anecdotal stories, but anecdotes don't tell the story. So I tried to find, really get down to how he was treated. And he, and he was... Um, he was not treated uh, well. Um, uh, many of his classmates, especially Southern classmates, uh, um, uh, treated him very badly. Um, but I did find that he had some friends, uh, white friends. He also, there were a few, um, uh, there, there was one upperclassman uh, while he was there who was a black uh, upperclassman, John Hanks Alexander, who graduated two years ahead of him, um, that he was roommate with. That, that he he was a roommate with, so um, he wasn't alone. Um, he wasn't totally without friends, um, but uh, it was a hard road for him uh, at, at the academy at that time. And really, the academy closed the door. I mean, the the first graduate was uh, uh, Henry O. Flipper, then John Alexander, then Charles Young in 1889, and that was that period after uh, the Civil War. Uh, where actually blacks had an opportunity until um, Reconstruction and, and uh, Jim Crow laws. And really the door closed to blacks at the academy and at, it, to, at West Point until um, 1936 with the graduation of, of uh, um, Benj Benjamin O. Davis, Jr. Um, so nearly 50 years, uh, there was a 50-year gap in, between his graduation and the next black graduate of West Point. You know, it's interesting having had a, a military career, really, and uh, then going into a major uh, a major agency in the intelligence community, uh, the uh, the DIA, and we find that a lot of young people uh, listen to our podcasts, mm -hmm. and as you take account of where we are and what's going on in the world and our role in it, what might you say to someone who would be considering a career? in intelligence and specifically perhaps in military intelligence yeah i i, th I think it's it's a um I, I i work with an an awful lot of very bright uh very motivated people in my in, in my current job i did at dia um i think uh i think it's a great uh, challenging job i would i would have people go to to the DIA um, website, uh, uh, you can go to the the DIA. Uh, uh, let's see, DIA.mil, www.dia.mil, um, and you'll find a history button there. You can you can press on that and and see the history office publications there. They're doing an awful lot of outreach, um, publishing the history of DIA, um, um, preserving the documents of DIA. Um, but also on that same page is there's public affairs and, and jobs available at DIA. And uh, I know they have an intern, they have a really vibrant intern program that goes on in the summer that's just about to start. So if you're a young person and you want to be an intern, um, there's opportunities there. But it's a great place to work. Um, uh, I, I would say when I first got there in 1992 as a uniformed guy, there was an aging workforce uh, kind of left over from the Cold War, but they, they have uh, uh, Shortly after that, they started a, a, a real recruiting push uh, to get young, bright people in there um, to, to kind of lay the groundwork for the for the future. Well, I assume it must have been an advantage to have been a uniformed officer and then to leave the service and go into DI with that background. Yeah. But what 
what would you say to someone considering looking at DIA because they're interested in military affairs, but they don't have military service? Would you recommend? I mean, what would your recommendation be? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, it's it's a um, it's a fact of life that not many of us have military service today. Um, I don't even know what the percentage. I mean, of course, we have a lot of folks in uniform in Iraq and Afghanistan right now, but um, but most Americans don't uh, have the the opportunity, the privilege uh, to serve in uniform. But that that shouldn't be a a reason not to. Uh, if you're bright, if you've got a, a degree in international relations or an interest in in that, uh, you know, uh, if you're if you have a language, if you if if you have uh, an interest in a in a foreign country, um, uh, you know, the, there there are great opportunities there. Are there, in other words, if someone were to go into DIA and with an interest in foreign affairs, with an interest uh, in a country, would they uh, most likely have an opportunity to, to travel to that country to visit, they even possibly live in that country? Yeah, for there, a there are there are yeah. options. Uh, there are options to to be deployed all all around the world. Um, you know, also there, you know, there's also the the option uh, to be deployed to to combat zones, but normally those people are volunteers. But but yeah, we have uh, we have offices around the world. Defense attaché offices have civilians uh, who are working in those offices. So certainly there are, okay. and around the country too. We have we have offices uh, in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, across the country. Okay. Well, Brian Shellam, it's been a delight to talk to you today. I'm going to look for black officer and a buffalo soldier when it comes out. And uh, what an interesting subject to pick, uh, particularly in these times. Thank so you. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.